Today's show is brought to you by Shine Cancer Support. They're a network for younger adults in their 20s, 30s and 40s living with and beyond cancer. Shinecancersupport.co.uk Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Durock, and this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. And for today's episode, this is Not Your Children's Show. So if you have young ears around, it's time to shuffle them out of the room. That's it. Shuffle all the way, all the way. Great. Now that we are alone, let's talk about sex. Shagging, nookie, lovemaking, or for any big bang enthusiasts out there, coitus. (laughs) Because most of us in our 20s and 30s may have been used to, well, more used to chatting about sex with a a few cocktails or a couple of beers. But after cancer, when we have a sex issue, who do we talk to? Our friends don't necessarily get it. And loads of us do have issues with sex after cancer. In fact, Roughly in our age range, about 50 or 60% will have some kind of impact on our sexual health after a diagnosis. Today, we have the perfect person to talk to about this. Joining us on the show is Dr. Isabel White. She is a cancer nurse, a psychosexual therapist, she'll explain what that is, and a clinical researcher, and she's going to lend us some of her fountain of sexual knowledge and also answering your questions. Welcome to the show, Dr. Isabel. (laughs) Really lucky to have you here. Thanks very much for inviting me, Tatum. Oh, yes. So you have to tell us, what is a psychosexual therapist? Yeah, I've been wondering that myself for quite (laughs) a long while, actually. Um, I think the title is a little bit misleading in that when you hear the term psychosexual, I think you probably imagine, oh, well, we think that all sexual difficulties are in people's heads. Of course, after cancer, that's very rarely the case. And in fact, really, when you're looking at things from a psychosexual therapy point of view, you're actually looking at what are the key things that really influence sexual well-being in in a person's life or in a couple's life. And inevitably, there are three key components. One is, what are the physical things that mean you can either have sex easily or sex sex can be problematic? Uh, The second thing is, what emotionally or psychologically is important? And then the third and important issue for some couples at least, is what's the relationship dynamic about and again how is that influential. So when you're looking at someone's sexual well-being from a psychosexual therapy point of view you're looking at those three components and obviously the extent to which any one of those are important or need to be the main focus of work together is determined very individually. And so did you get, which one did you get into first? Were you a nurse and then went into that? And, and when did you start to focus particularly on, on sex after cancer? Yeah, well, I, I was working at the Royal Marsden in London at the time. And I, I was working as a, a staff nurse and then a, a junior sister on the genital urinary ward at the Marsden. And um, what I came to understand was that a lot of the treatments that we offered for patients who developed cancers affecting particularly their bladder or their prostate gland or uh, anywhere in the pelvis could have quite a significant impact on their sexual relationship thereafter. And I just felt we weren't very good at talking about it. We didn't seem to know how to offer help. um, And I felt I needed to do something about that. So I kind of did a little bit of studying around at the time, but didn't formally become a sex therapist at that point. Um, But after a bit more research and studying, um, I decided that really that was the way forward, was to try and develop some clinical skills to be able to offer for people and just to try and develop a greater confidence in being able to talk about sexual matters with people whose illness and treatment has had an adverse effect on them. 
Because that's the tricky bit. It is, it? definitely. Because we keep so much to ourselves, especially about that. Well, I think I think sex for many people is a very private activity. Um, I think obviously as generations go through, um, it's going to change over time. Um, but when I think about my parents' generation, um, certainly talking openly about sex in my family would have been an absolute taboo. Um, within my generation, I think there's greater variability. I think I, I see a lot of couples, you know, in their 40s, in their 50s, who are much more comfortable talking about sex. But I think for some individuals, it's still something that they feel is very private and they're very shy talking about it. So I guess it is about then how do we within the health services and within charitable sector actually help people talk about the things that are concerning them and help them appreciate that this is actually a legitimate area of their recovery, just like any other aspect that's been affected by their cancer or their cancer treatment. And that's the, that's the thing that, you know, there is a feeling of, well, you know, I've either got through my treatment or I have ongoing treatment and shouldn't I just be really lucky, <laughs> you know, to just to have that. Like, it seems a little bit frivolous, doesn't it? To, to, after going through life-saving or life-prolonging treatment or ongoing treatment to then sort of say, well, actually, I'd really, I'd really like some sex now, please. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I think in the past, when people were perhaps less likely to have a successful outcome for their cancer treatment, then you could understand why people would hold that view. I think when we see how many people now are living with cancer long term or are cured of their cancer or have long term control of their cancer, then actually we need to care about every aspect of their adjustment after cancer. And that includes their sex life and their relationship. Um, So the way in which I guess I can reassure listeners that it isn't frivolous and that the health service takes it very seriously now by comparison is that the way in which it's now being integrated into a lot of the policy decisions that are made about how cancer services are provided and what needs to be there as if you like a marker of good quality services so just to give you some examples um, there are national guidelines developed um, for different types of cancer which advocate what treatments are on offer and then there's also a section within, within those guidelines which talks about access to support services. And actually, many of these NICE or Department of Health guidelines now indicate that access to help for sexual concerns and difficulties created by treatment are actually an essential component of good quality cancer services. So that's one example. Um, They're also mentioned um, in the likes of the NICE and Supportive and Palliative Care guidelines that were published um, a few years ago now, um, which again indicates when people have emotional consequences, when they're coping with the stress and the strain of the diagnosis and the treatment, and that it affects not just them, but their partners and their families, that actually they have a legitimate requirement for that support proactively, rather than waiting until they uh, feel that they can't cope anymore before asking for help. And actually within that set of guidelines, we mention psychosexual counselling very specifically, in addition to more general psychological support that people who are in distress might might find helpful. And then much more recently, we've got um, you know further guidance that's come through again about life after cancer and what services ought to be provided. And again, within those documents, um, the issue of access to sexual counselling and help with sexual difficulties is actually specifically mentioned. So in terms of what you see in, in your practice and in your research, especially with uh, with people in their 20s, 30s and 40s, mm. it, what are the, the main barriers to having their sex life the way that they want it? However, that is for them because, sure. you know, there's such a wide <laughs> spectrum of what people liked at the beginning of it. Um, but, you know, would you say it's more physical and more emotional or is that that's a really hard generalization maybe? For me, most of the people that I see for psychosexual counselling or therapy, it's a combined issue. In other words, it's a mixture of a physically created change brought about by changes in one's anatomy or changes in the way in which the body works um, or changes in hormones, for example, um, coupled with 
our emotional response to that, which um, might be that we feel we've lost self-confidence. Um, it might be that we feel very self-conscious because of physical changes in our body that make us feel and look different from our peers. Um, and being able to negotiate those changes with another person, because I guess that's the thing that's unique about sex, is it doesn't always just involve one person. It might involve two people. It might involve more than two people, either at the same time or sequentially. So the reality is, is that we're constantly having to renegotiate who we are, what we are, what we like, what we want, and having the confidence to know how to ask for that and how to negotiate that can be quite tricky, even in a long-term loving relationship where you communicate well about everything else. Right. Sex can be actually quite challenging for couples to negotiate. I know for myself when I was, um, it was not too long after treatment and I was watching a film and, you know, the couple on screen, they start kissing and then... You know, the scene is laboring, it's going on and on and on. It's like clear that they're going to have sex. And I'm thinking, come on, just get to the next scene. Just, just. And it suddenly dawns on me mm. that, you know, I'd for so long I thought that old people were really sensitive <laughs> about <laughs> sex and, you know, oh, they were so offended by sex. And I suddenly realized, no, they're bored. And that's what I, you know, I was reacting as if I was, you know, suddenly an 85-year-old lady that just wanted to get on with the storyline, you know. Mm. And and at, at once kind of understanding that and going, oh, yeah, I understand. I clearly don't see the world the, the same way. And at the same time, this huge, huge grief that I didn't see the world mm. the same way. Mm. And, you know, I, and and not knowing where where to even put that because where you know who do you say actually I'm grieving my lost sex life, mm. or you know because it's more than even just what's in in the bed. It's like how you view the world, mm. like that little flirtation that you might have with the person who gives you your coffee for that That's second. It. It's that confidence that bleeds in and throughout your life, mm. and so in terms of treating people that feel that 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 lack of connection in the bedroom like how how do you how do you begin to help somebody with I think it has to be very individual because just as your story illustrates, you know, we're all very different in terms of our confidence when we think about ourselves as a sexual person or if we're embarking on a new relationship, how we negotiate the boundaries of that relationship and what's acceptable or not acceptable to us. That in itself is very individual. And then when you put a layer of illness and treatment on top of that, inevitably, your response to the impact that the cancer or the cancer therapy has had on you from a sexual function point of view is tempered by your underlying personality, your confidence and your own personal circumstances. So I think if you're in an existing relationship, a lot of it is about learning how to be able to discuss things that are quite sensitive that make you feel quite vulnerable with your nearest and dearest, with whoever your partner is. Um, and again, couples vary, don't they, in terms of how much they disclose to each other, how emotionally supportive they can be of each other. So a lot of it is about learning how to disclose things that are causing you difficulty while owning them for yourself, but being able to have airspace with your partner, being able to put the fears and anxieties out on the table together in a way that isn't a blaming, it's not about... Um, feeling guilty. It's about saying, actually, I'm finding this quite challenging. I'm finding this quite difficult. What about you? So that you begin a dialogue. Now, that is obviously a way forward for an existing partnership. But there'll be many individuals in the age group that your listeners are in, where they're either not in a current relationship, or they're about to embark on a new relationship, where it's even more challenging, I think, yeah. because if your own self-confidence and your sense of sexual self-esteem has been adversely affected by what you've been through, then it may be that you do actually want to speak to someone really quite separate from your circle of friends. If you've got a really good mate that you can talk to about these things, then that's fantastic. But actually, even with the best friends in the world, 
they they may not feel able to talk about something that's so personal because inevitably they often will turn and put themselves in your shoes because they'll self-identify, won't they, with you, saying, gosh, that could be me. I'm not sure how I would feel. Now, it may be that that's all you need, just someone to show you that kind of empathy and support. But actually, if you want something that's a bit more practical or something that takes things a bit more deeply, I guess, my suggestion would be um, it's about trying to find sources of help. Um, it's about feeling that this is a legitimate aspect of your life and your recovery and that actually it's important because your identity is more than just what you do for a thing of work. Um, it's also about who you relate to and what constitutes your identity sexually can be really, really important for many people. So with male cancers, um, some of them we think of as being uh, affected by hormones, um, but others, um, they're they are affected by hormones by chemotherapy. Am I correct in in that? So, and and what can happen afterwards? Yeah, for I mean, them? some some men who have uh, types of cancer that require um, systemic treatment with the likes of chemotherapy, for example, it can have an adverse effect on the body's ability to make sufficient male hormone or testosterone. And in those situations, if they've had um, quite intensive chemotherapy or if they've been through the likes of a stem cell transplantation or a bone marrow transplantation, it can have an adverse effect on the level of testosterone the body's able to produce thereafter. And in those situations, those men will often complain sometimes of quite vague symptoms initially, like, well, they just, the fatigue, which of course is a common side effect of what they've been through anyway, but it just keeps on. It doesn't kind of really get better after one or two years it just they still feel they lack energy some of them find that the body hair that they used to grow quite readily is a bit a bit more sparse or doesn't really grow back much at all um, some of them will notice that instead of having an erection when they wake in the morning that erection is either never there or rarely there um, and also particularly in relation to a sexual situation when they're with somebody and they're sexually aroused finding that on times they can't get a sufficiently strong erection or keep an erection long enough to be able to complete sex or, or continue to make love so under those circumstances, those may be signs, they can be signs of other things, but they may be signs that actually your testosterone level is a bit on the low side. Do they regularly test men's testosterone levels? They tend not to in general cancer settings. So quite often, it's only if the man develops symptoms that might indicate that he's got low or low normal range of testosterone that they would then go ahead and do a free testosterone test and check that. So I think if men find that, you know, they're lethargic, that they've got variable erectile response um, when when they're in a sexual situation, um, they maybe got, as I say, changes in their body here um, from before. Um, and they just generally don't feel as vital and as energetic as before, although there may be other explanations for that. There is no harm in asking whether or not they can have their testosterone level checked, because if their testosterone level is either very low normal for their age or if it's below the normal range, then we can offer them testosterone supplementation to replace that testosterone. And that can have a dramatically beneficial effect on their sex lives and on their drive for sex because I often see men who've been through really intensive treatment and they're maybe one and a half years out or thereabouts and they say gosh I just I don't really think about sex I just feel there's no drive I'm not really interested and um, my girlfriend's getting a bit fed up with me because I've stopped approaching her to, to make love um, and she thinks it's her and um, and then so she turns away from me because she thinks that somehow I don't fancy her anymore or maybe I'm having a relationship somewhere else and actually it's not anything to do with that it's actually well his testosterone level is very low for his age and actually we need to give him a top up and the only time when that wouldn't be recommended from a health point of view would be if um, it was a cancer that was thought to be responsive to uh, testosterone but actually those cancers are quite rare in the age group um, for your listeners the most common one that we would have concerns about would be prostate cancer and under those circumstances it would be less usual that we would supplement testosterone in those men but men who've had treatment for a lymphoma or a leukemia or um, those individuals who've had testicular cancer treated successfully for example they may be the kinds of individuals who would benefit from uh, help with additional testosterone 
testosterone if they're not making enough themselves. That's that. That's really good to know. And with female cancers, a lot, I mean, a lot of the impact can come from premature menopause. Yeah. And I saw um, the other day a cartoon. It was the seven dwarves of oh, menopause, yes. <laughs> which were, I don't know if I can remember them all, but itchy, bitchy, <laughs> sleepy. Um, and the last one was psycho. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, all of those things don't really make you feel too hot you know unless you're having the flushing kind of hotness Um, but yeah I mean and that's it and with some cancers of course you can have some kind of HRT and with a lot of breast cancers and others um, there is no there is no HRT that's that's right I mean I think um, particularly ladies who've got breast cancer that's got estrogen receptors on the cells and therefore um, there's a a risk associated with providing them with um, estrogen. Um, We often use a treatment to help suppress and and control their cancer. That means that we're actually not, we're actually depriving them deliberately of estrogen. And under those circumstances, we wouldn't want to give them HRT. If that's the case, then we need to look at giving them practical solutions for managing the symptoms of menopause because treatment-induced menopause in women who are premenopausal at the time of their cancer diagnosis and treatment is a much more sudden and severe onset of menopause in their symptoms than women who go through a natural menopause. So it's really important that women don't think, oh, well, it is just the menopause. I was told about it. There's nothing that can be done. I think they should feel confident that they should be able to speak to their treatment team about menopausal symptoms there's lots of help out there in terms of practical advice and interventions that can help reduce the distress caused by say hot flushes if they're very troublesome things that can help improve your sleeping quality for example you can be given health and lifestyle advice about menopause management which are things like reducing caffeine reducing alcohol intake wearing layers of clothes that are breathable fabrics those are all very practical solutions but also we see um, studies that have been done now in in women uh, that are affected where the use of cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT can actually be useful in helping improve the distress and the symptoms of menopause, uh, particularly vasomotor or hot flushes, uh, those particular symptoms. Um, And I think that is terribly important for people to realise. Plus, we often um, supply women with acupuncture as well to help with hot flushes. So there are perhaps less usual things that you wouldn't necessarily think about that can be offered to help with, particularly with hot flushes, which can be very troublesome to to younger women when they're going through uh, menopause. And one of the things we have to mention, if we mention menopause... Vaginal dryness. Vaginal dryness, yes. absolutely. It's impossible to um, to talk about this without that because it's, yeah. it's huge yeah. and it has a, a really big impact. And for a lot of people, they, they don't know what to do. There yeah. is some products out there that... Um, you know, that doctors might say are okay. And I know this for myself, you open them up and it says, do not use use. if you have had breast cancer, do not use if um, you are, you know, have a history of breast cancer, do not use if anyone in your family has had breast cancer. And you're like, oh, uh, yeah, Um, what should I do in this? So what are some of your top tips for vaginal dryness? So top tips for vaginal dryness or vaginal dryness, as a Scot would say it, <laughs> um, are, are it's really important, first of all, if you're not allowed hormones for some reason, there are still lots of products out there that you can use. And that's really important for women, particularly those who've got a breast cancer diagnosis, is that there are two main groups of products. One is called vaginal moisturisers, and we'll talk about them in a second. And then the other group of products are um, intimate or vaginal lubricants, which are used on demand in association with sexual activity. So if we go back to the moisturisers, vaginal moisturisers are quite a few on the market. There are two main ones that are available in the UK. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention their names. Um, But one is available over over the counter, so you can buy it without prescription, and it's called Replens. And you generally um, use it as a little applicator, and you insert this applicator and administer this um, vaginal moisturiser pessary into the vagina 
every second or third day. So a couple of times a week, really. And that would be irrespective of whether or not you were going to be sexually active. The idea behind them is that it helps moisturise the vaginal tissues, plump them up a bit, give them a little bit more moisture content. Um, It helps readjust the pH, thinking of your school and chemistry again it readjusts the ph of the vagina so it makes you less susceptible to getting thrush infections or um, vaginal infections caused by sexual activity or associated rather than caused by them Um, and it also just helps you feel less dry and less itchy because some women do find even when they're just sitting you know like we are sitting chatting that actually they're aware of an itchiness in the vulva and in the vagina because of the dryness so it should help ameliorate those and these are freely available um, within the UK either on prescription or replens as I say is available over the counter There is one that's available on prescription only, but anyone with a cancer diagnosis is entitled to um, support with prescriptions um, uh, through the NHS. So it's a drug called, um, or a product, I should say, rather than a drug called Hyalofem. It's only been on the market maybe two or three years in the UK. Um, But actually, we advocate either one of those. It's a personal choice. Some women prefer one, some prefer the other. But both of these can be got on prescription if you've got a primary cancer diagnosis um, or you can buy the likes of Replens over the counter. So those are moisturisers. They're used in the same way two or three times a week. If you want to be sexually active, then you may well need an intimate lubricant in addition to those vaginal moisturisers. Sometimes some women find that the moisturisers are enough on their own, but other women prefer to use an intimate lubricant as well. And there are different types of intimate lubricant. Um, There are ones that are water-soluble, Um, And then there are ones that are either oil-based or silicon-based. The oil-based or silicon-based ones um, are a little bit more slippery, so they're better at friction reduction. So again, you might want to choose that if you find that the water-based one doesn't give you quite enough um, smoothness, if you like. If you find that there's still a little bit of discomfort, um, then you may find that an oil-based or a silicon-based product is better. Um, But most women probably start with a water-based lubricant just because they're much more freely available and there are more of them. There are plenty that come through, um, again, normal chemist shops like Superdrug, Boots or whatever. Um, In those particular outlets, you've got obviously all the Durex range. um, And then you've got ones that are very specifically designed for women such as, um, just trying to think of some actually, Um, you've got ones like... um, pure um, that can be got again some of them are available in chemists some of those you can get on on websites you've got one called yes which is an organic (laughs) product um, which is on the website and is also sold through some branches of Holland, Holland and Barrett um, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, um, picking up my nuts. Yeah, and- <laughs> absolutely. You could be going and getting your vaginal uh, uh, lubricant at the same, at the same time. time. Um, and there are ones called Silk um, that are also available mainly on prescription. Um, but the idea is that if you go and Google intimate lubricants, you can find lots of different ones. And again, it's about choosing the product that's right for you. If you're sexually active with Um, more than one partner or it's a new partnership if you're going to use an oil-based or a silicon-based lubricant you want to check that it's condom compatible for example Um, so you might not be in a current single stable relationship you might want you know you might be having sex with other partners you obviously want to be having safe sex as well as having sex Mm -hmm. so the idea is to do your homework find out the lubricants that are best for you and a lot of it is trial and error you know, which ones work best for you? Which ones do you like the consistency of? But we're going well away from the old style lubricants that were all like um, KY jelly, some patients mentioned to me, because they're what their GP uses for vaginal examinations or their doctor in the hospital. And I would say KY jelly is great um, for what it was designed for, but it was never specifically designed for sexual purposes, whereas all these other lubricants are. And so they have a sort of a gel-like consistency with KY jelly it's quite thick and it can get quite sticky when you're actually having intercourse whereas these other ones are more the consistency of like a thin baby oil so a small amount of it goes a long way so although it's more expensive than KY jelly the idea behind these other lubricants is that you don't need to use quite so much 
and, and they're designed for it. That's really it's really good to know because you know what you've given is um, a combination of like what you can go and get either at Holland and Barrett or at Boots <laughs> and what you can ask your doctor for yeah. and asking your doctor. I mean, you know. It, sometimes it can be tricky to create that relationship with your doctor um, or have that relationship with your doctor where you can ask for help. But one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the NICE guidelines and everything on this is that if we are out there asking for help with Mm -hmm. this, then they are much more likely to respond that this is a service that particularly people in our age group need. Yeah. Um, and then they're much more likely to write that into regulations and, you know, new things coming forward. So although sometimes it can be a little embarrassing, you have to summon up a bit of courage yeah. to ask those questions to say, I need help. And what help is there? Mm. There is, you know, there's maybe a hundred other people that, you know, wish they could do that. And you might be helping sort of forge the way. I think I think so. I think it's not just asking necessarily always for ourselves, but also thinking about, you know, how we can improve uh, the experience of cancer services and how we can actually make more services available to people who are actually living with the impact of the illness or its treatment um, in the medium to long term. Um, and, you know, whether you go and speak to your treatment team in the hospital um, or whether you go and speak to your GP, um, I think it's about preparing in advance. Um, So if you are feeling a bit shy and and you are feeling a bit awkward, then I often find what's helpful is if I write the questions down. And then it's almost like I'm not asking the question. I'm reading my (laughs) bit paper just like I might be doing now. And, you know, I'm saying to myself, okay, that's how I'm going to ask it and that's how I'm going to word it. Or you can do some preparatory work. You can even send a letter into your GP in advance or to your treatment team. And actually send it in and say, you know, when I next meet with you, my appointment is such and such, I'd actually like to cover the following. And that can be helpful if your doctor's then got time to also prepare that you're going to be asking them questions about this aspect. So instead of them being caught on the hop, although obviously more and more doctors and nurses now are much more confident in talking about this aspect of recovery than many years ago, um, it gives them forewarning that this is something you want to talk about and it helps them prepare for your consultation because they can go onto your onto your records, they can see that your correspondence is there and that you'd like to talk about that at the next time that you meet. And then That's a really good idea. And then it's there. Yeah. You know, because it shouldn't be the elephant in the room. You know, we shouldn't be dancing around it. It's as legitimate an aspect of your recovery as other aspects of your recovery. Um, so it it is about, as you say, seizing the moment and trying to have the courage to kind of bring it up. Yeah, and I'm going to be thinking about that the next time I do bring that up with my doctor. I'll be thinking of the future sex that other people will be having yeah. as a result <laughs> of going in there and asking questions. We are going to be having Isabel answer some of your questions that you've sent in to us over Twitter and through Shine Cancer Support. Our Twitter is uh, twitter.com backslash NY. GCS. In part two of the show, we will have your questions. So, question time with Isabel. So, we've got a bunch of questions here that were sent in to us through Twitter and through Shine Cancer Support um, through their Facebook page as well. You know, a lot of the questions really were focusing on um, confidence, drive, (laughs) lack of drive. But do you have any tips on improving body confidence? This was um, from one of our our listeners on Twitter. Any tips on improving body confidence after cancer to be able to enjoy sex more? Certainly what I've come to realise through some of the research that I've been doing is that a lot of the confidence that you lose is when you lose your place in your life, as it were. It's like the cancer interrupts more than just your sex life, interrupts your work life, interrupts a sense of your identity sometimes. Um, And so quite often the confidence building comes from getting back to 
those other normal aspects of your life. So getting back to work, getting back to the gym, losing some of the weight that we might have gained, um, just feeling a lot more confident in oneself because you actually feel that physically you're actually beginning to feel better and more like yourself. Well, I suppose, that, I mean, that's the thing, is that it, it really makes you lose your connection to yourself. Who and you then are. how how can you connect with someone else when, you, you know, you... Yeah, you you feel like you have to repair that relationship within you to begin with, especially physically? I I think so. And I think some of it is about almost um, apologising or uh, that's not the right word exactly. I suppose what I'm trying to get at is it's almost like one has to forgive. It's sometimes a sense that your body's let you down. It's almost like one has to forgive the fact that actually you didn't create this for yourself. This was something that happened to you. Your body is now doing its best to repair itself. It's trying its, its hardest. And really what we want to do as the kind of owner of this body is try to make those adaptations, try to actually go beyond feeling guilty or feeling bad about what's happened and turn that around and say, well, okay, now it's about looking at life after cancer. What do I want my life to be about? And that might also mean us making decisions about the relationship we're in or the relationship that we want to be in or changing aspects of our lives for the better. Because sometimes going through such a serious illness like this can make us stop and actually consider lots of things. I think Losing confidence generally, and particularly if you've had an adverse impact on sexual well-being, losing your sexual confidence, it is a stepwise approach to building it back up again. It's not about jumping in at the deep end and then scrabbling around and holding on to the edge at the side of the pool. It is about saying, OK, let me break this down into manageable chunks. So if you're in a current relationship and you're frightened about getting back to having intercourse again, then don't start with intercourse. Negotiate boundaries with your partner to create safety so that if you are getting yourselves hot and bothered and horny and turned on, you're not frightened that it might go too far too quickly that you can't then pull back from it because that's one of the real reasons why people don't make any approach at all is, well, I don't want to turn my partner on and then find that I leave them high and dry because I can't continue things. So it is about being able to set boundaries with your partner and say, look, I would just like the following. And you can negotiate how far you go those first few times. One of the um, one of our um, listeners actually sent in a, a comment where she navigated this space. She had lost 24 kilos wow. during treatment and was, you know, felt that her, her partner saw how physically yeah. fragile yeah. she was and he didn't want to hurt her. That's right. And so they... Um, they they had to sort of break it down a little bit and and start with cuddling and almost like she was reassuring him he was reassuring That's her right. and then um, she did she did let us know there was a series of props and pillows and um, they found all kinds of new new ways of doing things to accommodate some of you know um, the surgeries and everything that she had had um, going on and. And uh, th- but they found that to be very successful. But it did start with slowing everything down. That's I think that's a really nice example of someone who has had the imagination and the confidence to negotiate and re-establish intimate contact with a partner. Um, without any professional help. And in fact, what they've done is very similar to what we do as a sex therapist. What we do is we help couples break it down and we say, okay, you know, where can you start? What feels safe enough? So if it's just holding hands, walking along by the river or going out for a drink in the pub together because we haven't been out to the pub for months because of everything that we've been through as a couple, because the cancer affects the partner as well as affecting the person who has the diagnosis, um, then that's where you start. And you start where it feels safe. And the key thing, I think, particularly for desire and arousal, is it's about regularity. Because the longer one leaves something, the bigger the jump and the hurdle feels like it's going to be. Yeah. So it's about stepping in and doing something that you can dip your toe in the water that's straightforward. It might be going as far as having a bath or a shower together. It might be massaging each other, but doing nothing more sensual or sexual than that. But that 
intimate body contact and that ability to show empathy and care for each other and at the same time creating some nice feelings and sensations that can turn into a sense of wanting more but knowing that it's safe to take things that far and then we'll stop at that point on that occasion. But doing that on a regular basis whether that be, again, it's very individual, that might be weekly for some people, it might be daily for some people, it might be fortnightly or less frequently. It's mm. very individual. Because when you've been through so much pain yeah. in your body, even just enjoying something nice That's it. can be challenging That's in it. its own way. And I think um, with with sex, uh, depending on the kind of cancer, sometimes, of course, you know, there are, there are sex organs that yeah. were involved. And so it's it's... It takes a few times to um, get through, you know, when they are looked at, touched, felt that it's going to it can bring everything come flooding back. So, yeah, really creating that that space. But but also knowing that that although there might be some hurdles in the beginning there, you know, there is room for change, room for for growth and development, and what you feel in the beginning might not always be what you feel. Definitely, Tatum, and I think going going back to the point you made about you know being touched in a part of your body that you've come to associate with pain. You know, you previously associated that part of your body with a, a wonderful pleasure, let's hope. Um, and now it's associated with pain because of what you might have been through from a cancer treatment point of view. It's about being able to re-embrace its association with something pleasurable rather than painful. But that does mean that you have to take it gently and you have to take it forward in a stepwise fashion. Yep. And for some individuals, they might want to do, again, it depends on the person as to what's acceptable to them. But many individuals, even those in a current relationship, will want to do some solo touching and some solo masturbation, for example, to actually stimulate and bring about responses in their own body so they can come to relearn what it's like to feel sexual thoughts and feelings by themselves, or maybe using a vibrator, for example, to stimulate some experiences, or um, watching something erotic. All of it has to be within what's comfortable and acceptable to you as a person, and that's very individual, personality to person. Personality, but a lot of solo work can help you build that confidence so that then when you're trying to negotiate a boundary with another person, your partner or a new partner, then it becomes more straightforward. I'm it's not saying almost, it's easy, but it's, you know, more straightforward. It almost seems like... Um because because everything's different, mm. kind of um, you're relearning your body, almost totally. like going through that teenage thing again where you're you're figuring it out because yeah. it's a it's a different landscape now. That is that is really useful. Another question that we have is, ooh, when to tell someone about a male prosthetic implant? Okay, so what I'm imagining is meant by a male prosthetic implant are the surgically inserted implants that we use for men who've got permanent changes in their erectile function and where we've not been able to restore their erectile function using other means. Um, in some instances um, where you've got an adverse impact on erectile function, um, either caused by surgery in the pelvis or caused by radiotherapy to the pelvis or caused very much more rarely by um, chemotherapy induced changes to the nerves, for example. Um, you might be in a situation where you're able to use oral drugs. Um, the one that most people remember is Viagra, mm -hmm. which has been around the longest, but there are lots of others as well. Um, there's a drug called Cialis, there's a drug called uh, Levitra, there's a drug called Avanafil. They all work in very similar ways. Um, and um, they are used as our first line treatment for men with erection difficulties, either difficulty getting an erection at all or difficulties maintaining a sufficiently strong erection to have penetrative sex, whether that be vaginal sex or whether that be anal sex. Um, and I think then those would be our first treatments of choice because they're more easy and straightforward to take um, and they are if you like, more easy to accommodate within a sexual relationship, don't require a lot of planning and, and so on and so forth. Although you do have to time them so that they're working by the time you do try to make love. So usually they're taking about 20 minutes, half an hour before you anticipate being sexual. If those drugs, for whatever reason, don't work, we then have a range of products that are used. And so in a way, it's like a stepwise approach to managing erection difficulties. So you start off with 
oral drugs. Then if they don't work, you move on into looking at drugs that work directly on the penis. So there's a drug called alprostadil. And there's three different ways that we can administer that drug to the penis itself in order to create an erection. One is to inject it, but you can imagine that makes a lot of men's eye water. So, you know, obviously it's not something we jump in with straight away, but some men can be taught very successfully to use that and find it very beneficial. The other way is to um, use the drug. It's a little pellet about the size of a grain of rice that gets inserted through the tip of the penis into the urethra or the urine pipe. Um, And again, it's then absorbed into the penile tissues and brings about more blood into the penis to create an erection. And then the third way that it's got in is um, a a drug, uh, the same drug that's administered as a topical cream, um, relatively new out on the market. And again, that can bring about an erection. So we go through those stages and then we go through the likes of a vacuum device. And then if those fail or if they're not acceptable to the person in terms of their lifestyle choices and their sexual partnership choices, then we then talk about penile prosthetics. And penile prosthetics, that are two main types. Um, they are implanted surgically. But the reason we talk about them usually later rather than at the very beginning unless there's a very specific indication to do so from the start um, is because to insert them you have to remove the natural erectile tissue in order to create space to put them into the penis. They are very successful in them being used. Um, One is uh, like a malleable rod. There are rods put up either side of the urethra and you can then push the penis down or pull the penis up when you're wanting it to be erect to have sex. More commonly in younger uh, patients, such as your uh, listening uh, age group, we would use um, an inflatable penile prosthetic um, and that would be inserted under, both of these are inserted under general anaesthetic and in that one you've got an inflatable reservoir, one that goes up each side again of the urethra and you've got little tubes that are um, under the skin that join up with a little button that's embedded in the scrotum and a little reservoir of fluid that is in the pubic area. And when you squeeze the little button in the scrotum from the outside, once everything's healed up, it actually puts the fluid from the reservoir into the res- into the cylinders and creates an erection. So it can actually appear very natural, but it's being created by the man actually doing that while he's in a sexual situation. So if that's what's meant by a penile prosthetic implant, then, then that would be the case. There is also... Um, another type of penile prosthetic which men and women can use which is referred to as a strap-on which is an external device which is actually strapped onto the around the pelvis which is an external phallic device for penetrative sex that could either be used by a man who doesn't want to have a surgical implant and maybe cannot use his own penis for penetrative purposes but still wants to be able to engage in penetrative sex with a partner And sometimes it's used by some same-sex female couples because they want to use a dildo or use a strap-on as part of their sexual play. So again, that could be another indication for for an external strap-on device being used. So um, in terms of telling a new partner about that, do you have a general guideline? I I, I heard a guideline the other day, which was um, a a fourth date. Oh, right. Um, And uh, I think my response was, oh, so after you've had sex? Um, (laughs) So, I mean, that just shows. Um, There's really different different ways. Do do you have a general guideline of when, when you bring something like this up? I think it's hard to be too general because I think people are so individual and their circumstances are so individual. My sense is when you are embarking on a new sexual relationship with someone that you've known as a friend or someone that's part of your social circle and so you know something about them you haven't just met them in a club or you know met them down the pub or something like that then you may be more in a situation where you're likely to disclose the fact that you've had cancer treatment and that it's had some impact on your on your physical health and on aspects of your life Um, you might touch on that earlier because you already know the person a Mm -hmm. bit. I think if you're meeting someone for the first time in a club, even if you want to be sexual on that first occasion, the likelihood that you're going to want to jump straight in and talk about all the changes that may have occurred to you, I think is less likely and perhaps not really well advised because really you want to know whether or not this person can actually relate to you and whether you want to see them more than once. 
If, however, you're not looking to establish perhaps a, a, a short or medium term relationship, but you are just wanting a one night stand and that's something that you're both in agreement with, then there does need to be some direct straight communication from the beginning. Obviously, that requires quite a level of confidence, you can imagine, to do that. But I think it's helpful for if you're going to get down to being sexual on that first date, then it's really important that you have figured out what you're going to discuss with that person or what boundaries you're going to put in place for what you want to engage in versus what might be off the menu. Because otherwise, if you find that out by just stumbling across it, it you've then got to negotiate the awkwardness that, you're, that you may feel or that the person that you're having sex with might feel. Thank you so much Isabel for answering all these questions okay. and we could we could keep you here all week with the amount of questions about this subject it is such a huge subject and we will be talking about various aspects of relationships and dating and being single and relationships and what can happen um, in subsequent shows and so it is a huge topic it's great to have your expertise so Not at all. Thank, thank you, you very much, very much. Thanks, and Jason. do keep those questions um, and comments coming in as well like I said, we will be um, addressing this subject more in the future. Our Twitter page is twitter.com backslash NYGCS. And you can also reach us through the Shine Cancer Support Facebook page. If you're not already a part of it, go and check them out. It's pretty amazing. We'll see you next time. If you're looking for more places to get help, um, one of the places would be, of course, your GP or your um, your team. And the GPs are really a gateway to so much help that's out there, whether that be psychological, psychosexual, um, vaginal health, uh, menopause clinics. But they're not the only places. There's also other places outside the NHS. Um, Relate um, does couples counselling and psychosexual counselling and good news about that um, they are needs assessed so it can also be low cost and the College of Sexual Relationship Therapists that's a bit of a mouthful <laughs> also known as COSRT um, you can look them up um, www.cosrt.org.uk they can also provide um, therapists as well Macmillan Cancer Support do have um, sex and fertility info for teens and young adults. Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust also provides information on this subject, as does Breast Cancer Care. Movember um, includes um, men's cancers. Um, they can be reached at ukmovember.com. And ORCID, which is also about men's cancers, testicular, prostate, and penile cancer. Um, if you have a Maggie Centre near you, they also provide access to counselling and the Gay and Lesbian Foundation also has an LGBT Cancer Support Alliance. So there are just a few of the places that you can go and get some help to get more sex in your life. <laughs>